Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, April 15th. Before I get to today's news, as well as my monologue topic of the podcast, I have to let you know that these shows are brought to you in day in, day out by our friends at Diadem Sports, and I can only wish I switched to a Diadem racket that it was available to me early in my career, because if I got to use that Elevate 98, threw in some Elite XT strings as well. I might still be on the pro circuit now. Lucky for all of you, you can go to their website right now, diademsports.com. You can check out all of their gear, their technology, of course, taking tennis players level across the globe uh, to the next level, excuse me, uh, their their products developed with your performance in mind. And of course, each racket carefully crafted for a specific type of playing style, five different sets of strings, incredibly comfortable clothing from shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, all the sorts of things you want, even you know the premier tennis balls, the drawstring bags. It is really your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs. And you go to their website right now, diademsports.com. You'll see a bunch of their products. You're going to like them all. You're going to obviously have a full cart, and you're going to be like, man, I wish I could save a little money. Well, the good news is you use our promo code CR50. You can save 50% off your order. Use that promo code now. Again, the website, diademsports.com. They continue to support us here at Crack Rackets. The least we can ask you, the listener, to do is to go support them as well. Uh, with that being said, though, let's get to today's news and the place I want to start uh, because there was actually some clarification and it was a topic brought up on tennis Twitter today, something you know minute in the grand scheme of things. There are so many issues surrounding tennis right now, but obviously with the disruption in the tournament schedule, uh, of course we all understand the reasoning behind that, uh, but how are the rankings points, how is the ranking system going to adjust when we resume play? And of course, one of the best in the business, in my opinion, Courtney Nguyen, who you may know from her work as, in, as an insider excuse me, for the WTA. I just get so excited when I bring her up on the podcast. It's it's someone who we have yet to have interview. I continue to chase it. I think it's something we may be able to arrange some point in the near future, but, you know, she is really one of the best, and I'm sure all of you are already following her on Twitter, but today for WTATennis.com, she wrote, what does a frozen ranking mean, and explains how the current suspension of the professional tennis season impacts the WTA WTA rankings and the record books. Um, you know, I don't want to give it all away. I want you all to go click on the link because every click counts. But, you know, she talks about the frozen ranking means a player's ranking as of March 9th, 2020, which was the date when the tours stopped, will remain in place until play resume. 
points earned during the 2019 Indian Wells Tournament will remain on a player's rankings, as well as the points earned across all levels in the weeks that followed through uh, March 9th, 2020. In short, a frozen ranking includes all points earned from 2019 Indian Wells through March 9th, 2020, and it was updated to point out the rankings freeze applies to any time-sensitive rankings, records, and milestones, such as weeks at number one, weeks in the top 10. So for the WTA, at least, the fact that Ashley Barty ended the season, or at least ended this point of the season as the number one player. She's not going to get additional weeks for each week that the tour is off, and of course that seems sort of obvious, but it is something that requires a formal announcement. We need to say, hey, no, the rankings are frozen. Nothing added on from here. As I've been doing my research for all of these mini-break topics, five-year primes, who's the fifth most accomplished WTA player on tour, something I will get back to, of course, later on in this podcast. Uh, it's just interesting to note that these coronavirus uh, while it will, of course, impact the record book slams missed and year of players primes, you know, the, those sorts of effects are still going to be, you know, something that will never be truly accounted for. Uh, records at weeks number one, rankings points, all of these things will remain uncompromised. So for those tennis purists out there who value those sorts of records, and of course, I am one of them, that is good news for us. So nice to see the WTA take care of that. That was really the biggest piece of news. There was an interesting story today in TennisWorldUSA.org, I believe is written by Prakash, is the name of the author. No last name. He's a one-namer, like Ronaldo. Makes a lot of sense, Prakash. Uh, we all know Prakash. Uh, but he sort of aggregated, I suppose, a Ster- Sergei Stakovsky interview that he did on Ukrainian television when he said he was offered $100,000 to lose a first-round match at the Australian Open, it was a match Stakovsky ended up losing. In telling the story, he said there were two investors on the court. They asked him if they would do it. He said he would just hit him with his racket if he would have seen them after the match, that he discussed the match with the Tennis Integrity Unit, tried to, which had just been set up at the time, and they were asking him about it, and he was asking, you know, not to say he was over-dramatized, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? He was, there's some hyperbole, you know, you don't want to say that. I don't know the circumstance, but he was asking, can the tennis integrity unit protect my family? Because he says the people behind it are dangerous. Um, and I, I don't know the validity to this, why it's an interesting story is because of course the tennis integrity unit gambling in tennis is a fascinating topic. And it's really, you know, something we have discussed here at Cracked Rackets before when done properly, when done respectfully, it can be a really fun aspect of the game, a way for players, of course, and fans, players, not players, a way for fans to get involved, invested in the sport. I've said it before. It's the second most gambled on sport in the world, but at the futures level, you know, futures doubles points and challenger doubles. And I'm not saying it happens week in, week out, but it does happen. We're all well aware you hear things about certain players or certain tournaments, certain matches, and, you know, it's just an interesting story. So it's something that caught my eye today and something I thought I would mention in today's news section. Uh, But moving on through the rest of the news again, that was the Stakowski note. Um, we also got a really interesting idea, I thought, from, you know, now let's move to the interesting idea portion of the news, I suppose. John Millman asked today on Twitter, what happens if Australia recovers before the ATP WTA tours are set to resume? And he had an idea. He said have an opportunity to create a domestic interest in tennis again in Australia. Instead of having the run-of-the-mill money tournaments, why don't they do an interstate teams competition? And he said teams would be mixed and comprised of two legend players, six current players, two junior players, singles, doubles, mixed doubles played. 
he says maybe you play with the scoring system, but more importantly, players get contracts that will help some get them financially back on tour, and the public gets a different format of team tennis watching the past, present, and future players competing together. And of course, you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds an awful lot like world team tennis, and in essence it is. Obviously, incorporating legend players um, is not what world team tennis does, but look, if it's at a place where players across the globe can't come back for the world team tennis season, and domestically certain countries think there's an interest, a demand for doing just that, then by all means, go for it. We've said this repeatedly over these past, you know, since this quarantine began. Now is the time to get creative if you're tennis, and certainly uh, if the money is there, is the if the interest is there, you know, it's sort of a domestic Labor Cup style, world team tennis style thing. Um, and of course, you know, I don't know if the demand is there. I don't know Australian television markets. I don't know what the people in Australia do or don't like to consume, um, but now again now is the time to propose ideas like this and so it will be interesting to see where the idea goes from there certainly the response on twitter uh is something people like in carlos silva i see kind of like world team tennis john happy to lay it out lay it out for them and he says yeah it works and of course you know you know james duckworth says he's interested uh, people are interested so uh jp smith says he likes it cam nori likes it in theory it's great the question is is the money there and of course, that's something we will continue to monitor as more things develop over the course of these next couple weeks. You know, the best content idea I saw this week, non-cracked rackets division, or at least today, Christiane, her new soundtrack singer, I suppose her first single, Wipe It Down, with Evan King and Jamie Loeb. It's hilarious. It will almost certainly be making an appearance in this in next week's, I should say, Overserved. And by the way, I'll have to write my own lyrics now, but if you haven't checked out this week's Overserved, be sure to go check out our YouTube channel, Super Producer Daniel Westoff, up to all sorts of amazing things. He makes me, you know, actually seem funny, which is hard to do. So, hey, great shot to him, and please go check that out. Go subscribe there. You can find that this week's CR Classics episode uh, and more on that YouTube channel so be on the lookout for all that but yeah if you haven't gone and seen Wipe It Down go to Christian's Twitter account because it is really funny um, so you know just just a thought I suppose for all of you I, I like that I swore again hey great shot to me sorry Westoff he just gives me looks now because I record these we live together and he's across the table it's a little behind the scene look for all of you cracked listeners and he shakes his head when he's like just stop keep going come on finish this podcast uh, but it's just funny for me to see. I like getting the reactions now. It's a live reaction. One of these days we'll get him on the mic, but, you know, keep your hopes out for that. I think we're going to have to hit, you know, 100,000 YouTube subscribers on the channel before we get Westoff on any of our content. But he is one of the best to work with. Anyways, back to the news. So that's Christy on. Uh, some news in the college tennis world today. Uh, we learned that VCU head coach Paul Koston to retire after 30 years on the job. For those who don't know about him, uh, he is number two right now in terms of total matches won behind, and uh, this is from our friend Bobby Knight, Jim Schwitters, who won 1,327 matches coaching the men's and women's team for Hawaii. Uh, but, you know, that's sad for Coach Kosen. I'm sure this is not the way he wanted to retire. Um, but still, what a, what a fantastic career. Hey, great shot to him. And, of course, we want to honest, 
people who contribute to our beloved sport of college tennis. Uh, you know, we want to honor them as much as we can. And Coach Coaston certainly earns this sort of recognition. I also do want to quickly mention something else. Nicole Arbach, who is a reporter, senior writer for The Athletic, has been on top of all of the NCAA news, spring eligibility, what that eligibility is going to look like, what the financials behind it are going to look like. And she talked today, I think it was Cincinnati, who came out and canceled their, I don't know if it was their soccer team, they canceled some sort of sporting program. And, you know, she said cutting sports sucks, but it's going to keep cat happening and some of it will be opportunistic. The school had been wanting to cut that sport, but the current crisis now gives them a reason to do it. That also sucks, but it will happen as well as those that cut out of necessity. And that's just a, it's a thought certainly that's going to be hovering over this time period is the financial impact of all of this. It's going to affect tennis. You see tournaments canceled. We've talked about that with so many guests and getting players back on their feet as well, even with John Millman's idea that sort of relates to that. But from the college sense, you know, no football, no basketball, that's brutal for all of these schools. And so, you know, tennis are, is a non-revenue sport, and it's going to be on the chopping block, I, I know, in a lot of different places. And I don't know of any schools right now outright that are planning to cancel, but you hear rumors, and I don't want to name any programs in particular, but certainly each and every school is going to be feeling the effect of this, and you know that's a downside, unfortunately, uh, but it's just something to think about as you read each day's news. Be on the lookout for any tidbit you can have uh, college-wise, because there's certainly going to be things coming out related to that, and I know Tim Russell, Dave Mullins, the ITA crew will do everything in their power to continue to fight for the ITA for college tennis, and that's why we continue to love them so much here at Cracked Racket. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. So that'll do it for today's news from the professional tennis world. Let's get to the monologue now. And today's topic, as it was on Monday, is the race to be named the fifth most accomplished player in the open era in WTA history. And as I established then, Navratilova, Graf, Chris Everett, Serena Williams, they're in their own categories. You look at what they accomplished at the Grand Slams. You look at what they accomplished year in, year out, longevity-wise, just the peak of their powers, the best seasons they have. They're the four best. There's no question about that. I also threw out a couple of players from before, you know, 1975, because with all due respect to them, the game is so different. The structures of the tours have changed so much. It's hard to throw them into this equation. But, you know, on Monday, I looked at Justine N who certainly, by just looking at her five-year peak, one of the most accomplished players in WTA history. Certainly, there's a case to be made about her having her as the fifth best player of the open era, the fifth most accomplished, as Paul Anacone would like to say it, however you want to phrase it. Uh, you know, seven grand slams during that five-year prime year, and number one, her record head-to-head. We went through all of that stuff, so I don't have to do that again. But the person whose resume I want to go over today, someone who unbelievably, and after doing a deep dive on her statistics, the fact that this player is still playing professionally 
just blows my mind, especially when I get to the years that I consider to be at least accomplishment wise her five year prime. You know, it is just remarkable that Venus Williams is still playing on tour, still a top 100 player, and, you know, just has what she's accomplished in her career with perspective becomes more and more impressive with every passing year she continues to play. And, you know, let's do the deep dive first of her five-year prime because that's been the foundation of so many of these arguments. I've Arguments, I suppose I'm talking with myself. These analyses, we'll say, I've been doing on this podcast because, you know, for Venus— her her career has spanned four different decades now, which again, sorry for swearing my stuff, but that's just fucking nuts. Uh, but you look at, uh, you know, she started her career, her first professional, full professional season, I should say. Uh, you could probably consider it to be 1997. Certainly by 1998, she had won the Zurich Open, which was a Tier 1 Premier Mandatory, Premier 5, whatever it was called, event at the time. Um, or at least, excuse me, she won it in doubles, in singles. Uh, you know, uh, you look at it by 1997, she had made her first U.S. Open. See, this is, again, so much accomplishments, you confuse the singles and the doubles, but in singles, by 1997, the U.S. Open, she had made her first final. She played 13 tournaments at the WTA level, went 19 and 13. That, by all metrics, uh, her first full season, she was number 22 at the end of the year. And then, you know, almost, you know, fairly immediately after that, and you look at it, 1998, she's 18 years old. I consider her from ages 18 to 23 and to be the prime of her career, which is crazy to say. And I know she turned pro at 14, 1994. But I'm talking about first full season of WTA, uh, you know, highest level events only. And, you know, you look at her records from 98 to 02, 56.2 and 8.8. So, you know, she's playing an average of just over 60 matches a year. She's winning about 86% of those matches, 0.857 win percentage. That's exceptional. That's in the, you know, over 85% is when you are in that elite category over a five-year span. All of the players we've talked about, Nadal, Djokovic, Sampras, Lendl, Federer, uh, who else? Justine Ennin, of course, as well. Uh, they've all been over that 85% number now. Some of them get closer to 90, and that's when you're really talking about the elite of the elite. And yes, Justine Ennin was a little bit over, I believe, uh, 89%. I think she was at 0.893. So, you know, again, if you're comparing the two, and they're two of the—I'm going to compare them all on Friday's mini-break podcast, Ennin, Venus, and our third player, who I'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, so I'm not going to be comparing Venus and Ennin right now. I'll save all of that for Friday, but— Needless to say, Venus 0.857 win percentage during this time. That's exceptional. She's also making about, she's winning about six titles and making eight finals in 14 events per season from this 98 to 02 stretch. She only played 10 events in 2000, 12 events in 2001, but you look at just the efficiency during those seasons. 2000, which was maybe her best season of her career. She only plays three majors, but goes quarterfinal French Open, winner at Wimbledon, winner at the U.S. Open, gold medal at the Olympics. She played 10 total tournaments, made seven finals, won six titles, goes 41-4. and four. That's a 91% win percentage during that season. During 2000 as well, she won 35 straight matches from the 2000 Wimbledon to the 2000 Ladies Lynn's Tournament Final, which is the longest streak 
of the 21st century. Again, 35 straight matches. That's ridiculous. She's also one of only two active players to have reached the finals in all four Grand Slams. Again, she's the uh, her and Kathleen McCain-Godfrey have won the most Olympic medals, male or female, but from any tennis player in Olympic history with the four medals they have, uh, I should say, or four gold medals, excuse me, uh, five total medals. She's won one in singles, three in women's doubles gold-wise, and then that's silver in mixed from 2016. She's the only tennis player to have won a medal at four separate Olympic Games. That's all incredible. But of course, again, getting back to the five-year prime, I get ahead of myself because the list of Venus's accomplishments, that's the thing. You probably have to start with this. The longevity, right? That's her maybe her single most impressive trait. Her career has legitimately spanned four different decades and you know she was the first of course african-american in the open era to reach the number one ranking on february 25th 2002 the second all time in history um but you look at her five you know again that she did that in 2002 but you look at this five-year prime and i mean she was just exceptional you again 5.6 titles 8.2 finals and 14.4 events i mean she's making the finals at over 50% of the events she's playing during that stretch 50% that's the magic number that's when you're in the elite of the elite category now only winning 38.9% of those events, that's lower than Enin. That's lower than those Djokovic-Federer elite seasons. And you have to say, maybe as a ceiling for a player, and certainly, you know, Venus dealt with so many injuries during the course of her career and that she continues to play, you know, 26 years after she turned pro. That is part of her greatness. There's no denying that, that she can continue to come back and display this level. But in terms of her ceiling, terms of how long it was extended yeah her peak probably takes a hit you look at compared to Enin who is winning over 50% of her matches during her five-year prime that's a knock uh I said I wasn't going to compare them it's inevitable I apologize um but you look for Venus and her level of competition was exceptional I mean and she earned so many top 10 wins 70 total top 10 wins 14 per year during this five-year stretch you look at what she did at the majors as well I mean four titles she won back-to-back Wimbledon's and U.S. Opens in 2000 and 2001 uh, she made three other finals during the stretch all of them coming back to back to back in French Open Wimbledon U.S. Open 2002 so again this is the prime of her career. Three other semifinals, seven quarterfinals, a fourth round, a first round, and a DNP. I believe she had arthritis in one of her wrists, but she's also a three-time Miami champion, Italian Open champion, Zurich Open champion, ITF Grand Slam Cup champion. I mentioned her Olympic singles gold medal. Uh, she also helped lead the U.S. to a Fed Cup title in 1998. Uh, she didn't finish the year number one in any of her five-year primes. And in fact, Venus Williams has never finished a season in her career ranked number one. And some of that has to do with the injuries, of course. Some of that has to do with the players she came against. And believe me, we're going to get into those head-to-head records in a second. But, you know, I I already said it. She was the second African-American woman in history, the first in the open era to reach the number one ranking. That's exceptional for so many different reasons. And, you know, right now I'm not going to get into Venus's off-court contributions to the game. That's a completely different story, right? The fact her fight for equal play at pay at the Grand Slams. 
the effect that will have on just so many future generations of players and what it did for pay equity, not just in sports, but in American culture and Title IX and what it did for women's athletics uh, at universities, all of these different things. I mean, you can go on and on and on about her impact, and that's, again, a separate conversation for now. I just want to focus on what she accomplished on the tennis court because her tennis court accomplishments were so numerous and just so impressive. I mean, during this five-year streak, 28 of her 49 career singles titles come. She reaches 41 of her 83 career finals. You know, that's exceptional, but you really can't talk about Venus Williams because as great as her five-year prime was, you really do. She's the first one you have to say, well, what about the totality of the career? Because Ennin's five-year prime was better. I don't think there's any disputing that. And I think player three's five-year prime is going to be better as well. But just look at what she accomplished over the course, again, of a career that has spanned four separate decades. You know, you look at just her records. Here are the categories where she only trails Serena, Steffi, Chris Everett, and Martina. She is fifth in total Grand Slam quarterfinals, fifth in Grand Slam semifinals. Now, yeah, that part of that's a product of longevity, but it's also a product of her being really freaking good. And you have to give her credit for that when you're looking at the totality of her career, of course. And, you know, you continue to look at the other things she's accomplished and what records she holds. I mean, beyond just, again, the fact that she has, uh, what was it I said, the fifth to- in total Grand Slam quarterfinals and semifinals. She's sixth in finals as well uh, behind Yvonne uh, Golagong, who, again, probably has a case for this, but I've never seen her play. I don't know much about her, and that's something I get a gap in my knowledge I will try to fill after this, but I'm talking more recently when you can compare tour structures and whatnot, Uh, so I guess if you thought she was going to be player three, I apologize for disappointing, Um, but so you know, she's tied for eighth in major titles in singles. She's tied with Justine Ennin and behind a couple of other players, but seven Grand Slam titles. You're in the conversation singles-wise. She's fifth in total wins at the majors. She's first in total of major appearances in a career, 84 total major appearances. Of course, that is a product to her longevity, but she's 11 ahead of Serena. And do you think Serena has... Oh, so that's three more full years. Do I think Serena Williams is going to play three more, essentially, full seasons of Grand Slams? That's a fascinating discussion because, you know, it's them two and Amy Frazier and then a pretty big gap. And I think Kuznetsova is the second closest active at, like, 66, but she's not going to bridge the gap 18 more majors. Maybe she will, and if she does, hey, great shot to her, but you could see that record standing for a while. She's also reached four straight slam finals. She's tied for uh, with Ennin for the, in terms of the seventh longest streak, you know, making four in a row in WTA Open era history. She has the fourth most wins in Australian Open history, 10 sp- 10th most at the French, 4th most at Wimbledon, 4th most at the U.S. Open. And again, you want to put it as a knock on her for playing as many of those events as she has, you're doing this wrong. Longevity is 100% a factor in tennis. And hey, if you're going to fight for equal prize money, reap the benefits of all of those first round checks, baby. Venus Williams, get those dollars and deservedly so. Um, Again, 10th in total titles and finals, 6th most matches in history, 6th most 
wins in history. She's tied for seventh most Premier Mandatory Premier Five titles in the WTA Open era. She's tied for seventh in finals. Oh, by the way, she has nine Premier Mandatory or Five titles. She has uh, 15 different finals. She's sixth in semifinals at 27, so sustained excellence. She has 15 wins over the world number one. That's tied for third all-time. I don't know if I mentioned... Oh, I, I know I did mention the, her top 10 wins over her five-year prime, and I will get to uh, the players that she beat her head-to-heads because that's a fascinating component as well. Uh, but again, those 15 wins over world number one, tied for third all-time in WTA history. She's the sixth oldest player ever to win a singles title. Oh, she did it at Taiwan 2016, 35 years old, seven months. She was a WTA finals champion in 08, the ITF Grand Slam Cup champ, which was a world tour final equivalent uh, back in 1998. And she's second in career prize money, which again speaks to the longevity. And I think with Venus, another key caveat you have to have It's just how phenomenal of a doubles talent she was as well. I mentioned the three Olympic women's doubles medals she won. She was also uh, the mixed doubles uh, silver medalist in 2016. She is a 14-time women doubles Grand Slam champions. And in fact, you look at her career uh, in Grand Slams in doubles. She has played a total of 34 events. She's won 14 of them. I mean, that's just remarkable. When she plays, more often than not, she's a, you know, She's just doing that well. That's just ridiculous. Six. She's played 12 uh, different Wimbledon doubles draws. She's won six of them. That's ridiculous. Four of eight at the Australian Open as well. And, of course, you know, uh, maybe the most impressive stat in her resume, uh, two-time mixed doubles slam champion as well, but the most impressive in career doubles finals. She's made 23 in her career. She's 22-1. and one. So if she gets to the doubles, she's playing, she makes it to the finals, she's winning that event. I mean, that's exceptional. That's, again, that speaks to the aura of Venus Williams. And, you know, the last thing I want to talk about when you look at her record is her head-to-head because there are just so many different generations of, you know, top WTA players that she's gone against and she's had success against so many now. You know, the most notable rivalry of Venus's career is, of course, the one she's played against her sister. I believe it's the most matches she's played against anyone. She's 12 and 18 against Serena, and you have to wonder, you know, no Serena does Venus end up with way more than seven majors. And the honest answer might be yes. I mean, again, you talk about that 2002 season where she made the finals. She lost to Serena in the 2002 French Open finals. She lost to Serena in the 2002 Wimbledon finals. She lost to Serena in the 2002 U.S. Open final. She lost to Serena in the 2003 Australian Open final. She lost to Serena in the 2003 Wimbledon final. So that's five straight finals for uh, for Venus where she lost to her sister. And I mean, of course, she lost her sister in the 09 uh, Wimbledon final as well. She lost to, uh, I believe actually that was in 2017. I don't think, oh, she did play Serena. That was right, 2017 in that Australian Open final. She did end up losing that one to Serena. And look, of course, that affects her slam count. She wins even, you know, two more of those. She probably, without dispute, uh, is the number five most accomplished player by her career in WTA Open Air history. And honestly, she still might be number five. We'll get to that when we get through person number three. But, you know, outside of the Serena head-to-head, because I think people have talked about that enough at length, that was just to remind you all, brief synopsis. But, in terms of her biggest rivals over her career, Kim Kleisters, who 
you know, played across a couple of different decades as well. And maybe that was post-prime Venus, although they played a lot of their matches. You're looking at their head-to-head, or I'm looking at their head-to-head record right now. All of their matches happened between 2001 and 2010. And so, you know, that wasn't—the the latter matches, they only played three matches after 2005. So the majority of these matches happening, if not in her prime, her immediate post-prime, still near the peak Venus Williams. And against Kleister, she was six and seven. She started two and zero. Kleister started two and zero, or I should say, Venus started two and zero at the majors against Kleister's. She ended two and three against her. All of those matches happening at the round of sixteen or later. And I mean, they played in a bunch of final. Venus won in Stanford. Venus won in Antwerp. But you know, Kim got her in the Miami Masters. She also got a win in Stanford and finally knocked her off in Hamburg in two thousand two. So that was a back and forth battle. Again, Against Martina Hengis, another one of her contemporaries, and Hengis, of course, was so good in the mid to late '90s and that early 2000s range. They played uh, between 2000, uh, between 1997 and 2002. These two played 19 different times, uh, and you know it was an 11-10 split overall. But in those 19 times early on, it was a 10-9 split for Hengis. Now you know for Hengis, she was three and zero at Slams through 1999 against Venus, but she ends up only four. Four and two with the edge over Venus. Venus ends up getting her uh, at the, excuse me, at the Wimbledon 2000 quarterfinals, as well as the U.S. Open 2000 semifinals. And as you may remember from earlier, uh, those are both events that Venus goes on to win. And so, you know, ten and eleven, it's respectable. Early on, there was a lot of Hingis dominance, and in fact, you look at their record. Uh, you know, at the beginning, I think Hingis won their first three, four of their first five, and five, six of their first, uh, six, seven, eight of their first 11 matches, and then Venus was really able to flip the script on Martina. And of course, there are reasons behind all of that. But, you know, that's, again, in terms of her peers during the era, there was no dominant edge for her. Although there was one over Justine Ennen, which we'll get to again on Friday 7-2. That was the one rivalry that, and I guess against, you know, some players like, we'll get to the lopsided ones in a second. But for now, I want to talk about the close ones. Another major contemporary of her, probably her biggest rival outside of her sister was the matches she played against Lindsay Davenport. She was 13 and 14. Again, close, but pretty even against Lindsay Davenport. 5 and 4 for Venus overall at the Slams. All of those matches happened at the round of 16 or later. And, you know, they played all of their matches between 1997 and 2005. And the one we may all remember most, that final match between them, that 2005 Wimbledon final where Venus did knock off Davenport Four six seven six nine seven to take home the title, and you look back, you know, for Venus Williams, two thousand five, that was uh, one of her last Grand Slam titles, so certainly meant the world to her. Uh, for Davenport, that was one of you know her final uh, major moments as well. So that's a great match, maybe a CR Classic in there, but you know that's another back and forth rivalry that was fairly even throughout the duration of their careers. No one player dominated the other at different point. Davenport, you know, four straight wins from oh. Four, uh, through uh, four straight wins before that Wimbledon final from 04 to Wimbledon 05. Venus had a run where she won, I believe, uh, six matches in a row as well. Uh, it was lopsided. They were very streaky. And I suppose early on it was all Davenport, but by the middles of their career, it was it was back and forth affair. They both knew so much, obviously, about each other's games. And it was a fascinating uh, dynamic, certainly. So that's just another thing. Not a huge edge for her over her peers, but you know, you start to look at some of the 
other record. She was 7-7 seven, seven against Yelena Yankovic. That came a little bit later in Venus's career, so that she played her even. That's pretty impressive. 6-5 and five over Kuznetsova, uh, who, she, you know, again, Kuznetsova, I suppose slightly later, more in that 3 range was the Kuznetsova resurgence. And you actually look at the majors, Venus overall 3-0 and against Kuznetsova, so you give her a slight edge. 6-5, and five, pretty even, though. 3-5 and five against Sharapova. They just didn't play that often, especially given how long their careers overlapped. But you look for Venus. She was the one who, hey, Sharapova came in as the defending champ in the 5 Wimbledon. Venus knocks her off in the semifinals 6-1. And, and, you know, Sharapova 2013 gets a win over Venus 1-3 in the third round of the Australian Open. But outside of that, they didn't play too many significant matches you know, in terms of other head-to-heads, she dominated Capriati, dominated players like Savannah Reva, Wozniacki, Justine Ennin, which I talked about, Chanda Rubin. She was 9-1 against Patty Schneider, 11-0. She also had edges over Sanchez Vicario and Morezzo. Slight margins, but, you know, 6-3 the first, 5-3 the second, respectively. 9-1 uh, against Monica Seles, take with a grain of salt, obviously, given when they played in their careers. Uh, you know, there are a couple of players who have winning records over Venus. There are a couple of one matches, and you look at the players who are probably too young to judge it fairly. Keys, Stevens, Svitolina, Kvitova, Barty, Pliskova, Kerber, Halep, all with winning records over Venus. Although, I would point out, 3-4 and four for Venus against Halep, 3-4 and four against Kvitova, 3-6, and six, which really isn't that bad, against Kerber, 2-3 and three against Keys. Uh, 0-3 against Lina is probably the one that hurts the most outside of the matches against Serena, but she played all of her rivals fairly equally. Now, she doesn't have a definitive edge, which, as I talked about, is something you have to think about. Was she really, at her best, better than everyone else on tour? This is when you're talking about her peak, when you're talking about her upside, and you know she, that she always matched up with Serena. That certainly hurts her career stats, but... She played her biggest rivals primarily to a draw now that she has so many. Again, it speaks to the longevity of her career, and that's the biggest takeaway. You just talk about it. Four different decades, multiple different generations of tennis players, and through it all, you know, we've had Venus Williams, and at her peak, she was exceptional. Uh, I think I, you know, I just talked about those four titles, back-to-back Wimbledons and U.S. Opens in uh, 2000 and 2001. She made four straight Wimbledon finals from 2000 to 2002, three straight Wimbledon finals from 07 to 09, three straight U.S. Open finals uh, from 01 to 02, and went from 97 to 02. Finals, semifinals, semifinals, winner, winner, finals at the U.S. Open, and you know Venus has been along around for so long that people who watch her now uh you know every you hear how great she was but until you see these stats before until you go see how just exceptional of an athlete she was early in her career when you go watch her highlights on youtube you know it's really hard to appreciate it but because again longevity is such a factor for her but at her peak she was also exceptional as well so i think her versus justine ennin versus this third player who i'm going to introduce tomorrow i think it's a really interesting debate because as i said on monday's pod they're all slightly at different points of the spectrum in terms of what you value as a tennis fan, what you value from a player's career. So that's my Venus Williams breakdown. And of course, it went uh, this long because there's so much to discuss. She really is one of the most, certainly, you know, totality of her career impact is any discussion you want to put her at the top of the list in terms of her impact on this, you know, the sport of tennis, that's not disputable. She is, you know, again, 
from equal pay to just being a cultural social icon for the duration of her career venus williams impact on the sport will have it'll be an everlasting impact there will never be a time when people stop appreciating what venus williams did for tennis but strictly tennis based looking at her accomplishments especially primarily as a singles player there's some interesting room for debate. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about her statistics and, again, just to remind you all why we should all appreciate every moment. I think this would be, what, her fifth Olympic event? I mean, are you kidding me? Five Olympics? Sixth Olympics over the course of her career. I forgot. 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016. Six Olympics has to be some sort of record. I don't know it off of the top of my head, but that's special stuff from Venus Williams. So if you haven't gotten to see her, you know, although how could you not have at this point? But just be sure to appreciate the final moments. I don't think I did it as well as I haven't been doing it as much as I should have. And, you know, moving forward, that's something I'm definitely going to try to do better because I think it's important. And I think she's just been exceptional. So. That's today's monologue, a little Venus Williams for you all. If you like this sort of topic, you should hear the mini breaks I did on Justine N. in this past Monday. I also did one on Yvonne Lendl, on Sampras, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, their five-year peaks and you know how exceptional they were at the top of their games all throughout the past couple of weeks, uh, I think the past week and a half of mini break podcasts. You can find all of those on this mini break feed that you are listening to this episode now. Uh, of course, you can also find all of the other podcasts we've produced as of late on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Really fun conversation uh, yesterday with former Michigan, uh, former current Michigander, uh, former top 20 WTA player. She was in the top 20, I think, for something like 20 years. One of the players who had a record of hers broken by Venus Williams due to longevity. That, of course, is Amy Frazier, who talks about her time in the game, how physically, mentally taxing it is to sustain a WTA career for 20 years, and you know how the game changed during her time uh, in it, what former calls for unionization look like, and, you know, from her perspective, how the urgency of now um, impacts maybe what those discussions now look like. Uh, it was a really fun conversation. Go check that out. Go look at the conversations we, of course, have had with Paul Anacone, Christian, Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Chris Woodruff, and so much more, all on that Cracked Interviews podcast. Be on the lookout for the GSP, uh, CR Classics number two. We have Pat Rafter, Andre Agassi, I'll get the match away now, Wimbledon 2001 semifinals, myself and Gil Gross, who you all get to learn so much more about throughout the course of the podcast coming up soon. I'm also going on Gil's show this weekend. Uh, I don't know when he plans to release that, but we'll do something similar to CR Classic, so be on the lookout for that as well. And of course, if you've missed any of our content, you can find it on our website, CrackedRackets.com, the YouTube channel up and running. We are getting closer and closer to 1,000 subscribers, but I know some of you still haven't subscribed. It's 15 seconds. Again, as you're walking to the bathroom, just pull out your phone. We all have the YouTube app on our phones at this point. It's three clicks. Cracked, or I guess, again, I spelled this out yesterday, but I think it's 14 letters, so I suppose that many clicks plus the space, 15. Click, click, click. We'll say it's under 20 clicks, which you can definitely average over a click a second. So you can do it in under 20 seconds. Subscribe to that YouTube channel. That's some math for you. Um, 
and just you're not going to miss you don't want to miss any of our crack rackets content whether it's over served whether it's a cr classic whether it's just any of the fun stuff super producers max flinger and daniel westoff are up to on that channel go subscribe so you won't miss a thing and of course shout out as always to those super producers for the f- of an editing job they do day in day out making all of this podcast content possible uh that will do it for today's show before we wrap one last shout out to our friends at Aerobar. you go to their website uh you use our promo code crack 30 get 30 percent off of your order of course shout out again to diadem sports go to diademsports.com use the promo code cr50 50 percent off all of your tennis gear needs but with that being said for super producers max flinger and daniel westoff for our sponsors at diadem sports and aerobar and from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say folks that's the break and we will talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.